I have been excited about this series that we've been through. I've been really enjoying it, and I've really been enjoying doing this with Todd. Um, it's been good to kind of hear back and forth as we go through these perspectives on the idea of faith. Now, as we've been going through it, there's several topics and the several, several ideas that we have been discussing, and I'm going to go ahead and put up the first slide here. We've been talking so far about four different ideas. Now, we're hitting into topic number five today, but we started the whole idea with faith is that you have enough faith already. All of us come into life having faith. So if we're going to talk about being people of faith, it's not that we need to go out and find some more faith. We have it already. We, we have enough that allows us to get into a car every day and drive. We have enough faith that allows us to sit down in our seats at home. We have enough faith that says I can go home and walk through my front door without worried about my house crashing on. We all have enough faith. It's just what is the object of our faith. And so we started in that idea. We then went into the idea that faith does. Faith is not simply about what we believe. Faith is also about what we do. If we say we have faith, in fact, in the book of James, James says, you show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, Faith that doesn't do anything, if it's just a belief system, has no value. There's no purpose to simply knowing about something if we don't do something with what we know. And so we began to talk about the idea that faith does. Then Todd began to talk about this idea that based on what I have, it's not based on what I wish I had. All of us sometimes feel a little inadequate in our faith, like somehow our faith doesn't measure up. But the reality is, is that God does not judge us based on what we don't have. He kind of holds us accountable to what we do have. Last week, we kind of went into this idea. All of us in our faith journeys need someone to walk with us. That somehow in our faith, God brings in certain relationships and certain people to walk beside us, to walk with us, to push us, to encourage us. And we all need them. Well, we're going to push on a little bit today, and we're going to talk about faith that begins to grow up. Several years ago, I was remodeling one of our children's church rooms in Australia, um, and like most churches, money was non-existent, and so I figured out I could save a couple hundred dollars if I redid it myself. And so one of the things then, and the major, the major improvement of the room was we put new carpet on the floor. So we pulled up the old, the old carpet and we put new carpet on the floor. And I realized so quickly that if I laid that carpet myself, I could save a couple hundred dollars. Now, Rodney, I'm sorry. I should have really have called you guys in, but you weren't there. Um, but I thought, man, I can save a couple hundred dollars. So I went down to the carpet remnant store where they, you know, the, and I found this beautiful piece of offcut that fit the room. I went out, got some commercial grade underlay. It was a wood floor, so I needed something to soften the dead and the noise up underneath there. I got all my carpet tacks, and I knew I could do this because when I was a teenager, I helped a carpet layer guy for two days as he was recarpeting our church, and my dad sent me in to help him. So I knew I could do this. So I got that carpet, and I got it laid down there, and I... If you know anything about carpet, especially carpet that has got underlay on it, you know you got to stretch that out because if you don't, you end up with all these little bubbles and puckers. And so I knew I had to get that thing stretched out. And so I found this knee kicker. I don't know what they call them. 
but you kind of stick this thing down and you give it a good whack with your knee and you kind of stretch the carpet out. And I have to say, after a couple of hours, that room looked pretty good, okay? I, I don't mean to be proud and boastful, but I gotta say, Rodney might have hired me that day. The only problem was, is as I went to bed with my ego feeling good, I saw that room, I knew I saved a couple hundred dollars. I went to bed and I got up in the morning and you know what? I couldn't move. I literally could not move. I tried to get out of bed and I literally, I went bent over like that automatically. I had a pain that went all the way, shot down my whole leg, all the way down to my toes. I tried to sit down, I could not sit down. I tried to lay down and no matter how I lay down, I couldn't, it just, it was in not good shape. And so for several days after that, I kind of understood that little vow you make when you're married, for richer, for poor, for sickness and in health, for better, for worse, and that was definitely at one of those worst moments. My wife literally had to baby me for the next few days. We've been talking about this idea of faith, how sometimes all of us need people to come into our lives and kind of to push us, to prod us, to hold us up. When our faith begins to stumble, we need someone in order to come behind us and to hold us up. Almost like what my wife had to do for me for a couple of days, and I wish I could say that it was better in a couple of days, but literally it took me about six months for that to work back out of my back. So if you are thinking about trying to save a couple hundred dollars on carpet laying, I just recommend call Rodney. Rodney, do you have any guys to spare? Okay, it's not worth it. But we all need someone in our corner. We all need someone to hold us up, to build us up, to encourage us. Like my wife did for me for a couple of weeks, we need someone like that. However, we all know this. It is not sustainable for us to have someone continually hold us up. If your faith is going to help hold you strong, if your faith is going to get you through the tough times, if your faith is going to handle it when things are not working out for you, it cannot be based simply upon someone else holding you up. It has got to be stronger than that. It has got to stand on its own two feet and it's got to be able to say, you know what? There's a time when my faith has to move forward even if there's not someone behind me. The problem is, is that so often for many Christians, the idea of faith is almost more like a water system that continually collects water but does not have an outlet for it. In other words, so many times... So many Christians basically see faith as this cup that just kind of continually dumps in, dumps in, dumps in, dumps in, dumps in, dumps in. But there's never an outlet that says, here's what my faith does, here's what my faith is for, here's how it works itself out. Now, the writer of the book of Hebrews began to deal with this, and he began to describe this problem as he was talking to the Christians and he began to talk to all of us because we all find ourselves in this situation sometimes during our life. 
And in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, the writer says this. You've been believers for so long now. In other words, you say you have had a faith for a very long time. You claim to have a strong faith. Okay, I'm, I'm doing a little ad lib in there, okay? The actual words are up there. Follow that one. Okay, those are the inspired ones. But he's basically saying you have had a faith now and you think it's strong. You, 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 you look like you have something, but yet there's a problem. And here's how he goes on to say, you ought to be teachers by now. In other words, there should be something. You, you should have now had this faith for so long. You, you should be outward focused. But instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things of God's word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. With just a little bit of sarcasm. I'm sure it was just a little. He stops and he says, you guys are acting like babies. You should be at a place now, he says, where you are getting involved in the, in the lives of others. But instead, you have to have someone to continually pour back into you. You're like a cistern who continually receives, 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 but you don't ever put out. James, the half-brother of Jesus, also mentions this idea, and he mentions it on the idea of prayer. And so in James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he says this, you want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. You fight and wage war to take it away from them, yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. Okay, and then he continues this, and even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Both James and the writer of Hebrews is telling us that the problem with some of our faith is that it is all too often a selfish thing. It's all about what will it do for me? What do I get out of it? How does it make me feel? And basically what he says is all too often our faith is not for us, it's about us. What do I mean by this? Well, when we begin to talk about our faith, we have these strange ideas of what our faith is about and what it should do. We have an idea that our faith should be about some kind of a feeling that gives us a reassurance about certain ideas. I don't know how many times when I've had someone come and say, Pastor, I, I just want to know what God wants me to do. I, I, I want to do, I have this new job opportunity that's been opened up to me and, and I don't know what God wants me to do and I, I'm concerned. Do I, do I quit my job and take this other job? Okay, please don't hear me wrong. I think it's always a good thing when we bring God into our everyday lives. But we begin to take our faith as an idea about what's, in it for me. Should I buy a house or should I not buy a house? Do I have a peace about it? Does my faith give me peace about whether I buy a house and sell a house? 
Should I buy a Ford or should I buy a Chevy? Oh no, Dodge is the thing that's in now, isn't it? Buy a Porsche. Well, that's a good idea. But we begin to stop and we begin to use this idea of faith as an idea of a reassurance. I feel good about it. So therefore I have faith that God has reassured me this is the way to go. We, we talk about the idea of faith in, in the way of, of moving away. Well, God, do you want me to move to, to another state? Do you want me to move to another suburb? Do you want me to move to... God, do you want me to leave my wife? Do you want me to leave my husband? I, I, need, I need your feeling right now. And we begin to look about our faith as an idea of a reassurance about some kind of a peace, about something that I want to do. And please don't think me disrespectful when I say this, but God was never concerned when he died on the cross whether we bought a Ford or a Chevy. And I don't mean to be disrespectful about it, and I don't mean to be downing our idea of faith, but so often we get thinking that our faith is about God opening up the parking spot on the front of Walmart parking lot for us. In a sense, what the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying and what, and what James, the half-brother of Jesus, is saying is, is your faith has become so self-consuming. It's all about what it's in it for you. Is this going to make you feel good? When our faith has got to be so much more. Now, I do think it's important. And I do really think, hey, if you're about to sell a house, ask God. Talk to God about it. I think that's important. That's not what I'm, I'm not downing that. But our strength of our faith has to go beyond simply what's in it for me. In fact, Paul lets us know and he tells us what the value of our faith is should be. In Romans chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, here's what he says. We who are strong, okay, what does he mean by we who are strong? We who have a strong faith must be considered those who are sensitive about these things. Now, that these things he's talking about in, in uh, Romans chapter 14, he was talking about those who wanted to argue over whether you should eat meat, whether you should drink wine, whether you should celebrate a certain holiday, whether you should meet on a Saturday or whether you should meet on a Sunday. And Paul says, whoa, you've missed the point. You who have a strong faith, be considerate of those who are struggling with this idea of faith, whose faith is not where it should be yet. And here's what he says. He says, we, uh, we must not just please ourselves. We should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. In other words, what he's trying to tell us is that the value of our faith is only shown in the strength when it is lived out, not just before others, but for others. The strength of your faith is shown not by, not by how much of a feeling you have when you go to sell your car or buy your next one. The strength of your faith is indicated by what you do for other people. When Jesus died on a cross, he did not die on the cross to bring pleasure to himself. I think that should be kind of obvious. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't even die to bring pleasure to us. 
He died on the cross to bring us reconciliation before him. To bring forgiveness, hope, a path forward. He came to bring restitution between him and God, or between us and God. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, the idea of the faith that he was bringing was to bring us into relationship before him and before others. A faith that is strong and productive, though, I mean, it begins to have a distinct look about it. Now, it's really easy as we begin to talk about a productive faith or a strong faith, it's kind of easy at this point just to kind of say, yeah, a strong faith, it's about others. Yeah, a strong faith, that's, that's yeah, it, it should be, but what does that look like? I mean, it's easy to talk about, and it's really easy to talk about on a Sunday morning when you kind of surround yourselves with a whole bunch of people who kind of look like you, who dress like you, who act like you, who talk like you. But it gets a little bit tougher when Monday morning you go out and you gotta go to work and there's someone who doesn't look like you, who doesn't talk like you, who doesn't act like you. In fact, that guy likes to push all those buttons. So what does it look like and what does it mean when it says, when Paul says, your faith needs to be lived out before others. It is not to be lived for yourself. Your faith is for you, but your faith is not about you. So what was he meaning when he starts by kind of giving us this idea? Well, Paul lets us know in several places, and I don't have the time to look them all up, but I do want to look up specifically one passage and kind of bring in another just to kind of back it up. But Paul's whole idea was to leave a legacy of faith behind him. If you understand Paul's life, his whole life was to leave a legacy that behind him there would be people who would pass their faith on to someone who would pass their faith on to who would pass their faith on to someone. He didn't just come in to start a big organization to say, wow, look at what I did. He was concerned that people came into a relationship with their father. And so here's how he says it. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 14 to 15, he gives us an idea of what an outward-looking or an other-centric faith looks like. A faith that is not for itself. And here's what he says. He says, brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy, encourage those who are timid, take tender care of those who are weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one pays evil for evil, but always tries to do good to each other and to all people. He mentioned six things that gets real practical and down to earth if we talk about an outward centric or an other centric or a faith that doesn't live for itself. First, he starts with this idea, warn those who are lazy. Now, when Paul uses this word, warn those who are lazy, he's not necessarily talking about a work ethic. He's not talking about, hey, if someone doesn't work 40 hours a week, you need to have a conversation with them. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, this word is actually just kind of described for people who like to go in groups and families and begin to bite on each other and tear each other down. 
It's not an idea about a work ethic. It's about an idea that they destroy rather than build. In fact, to help us understand this idea a little better, uh, in Titus chapter 3, he kind of explains it a little bit more in a, in a certain way. In Titus chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, he says this. Do not get involved with foolish discussions. I wish I had learned that a lot more when I was younger because I am drawn to foolish discussions. I love them. They just kind of says, James, this is one you need to get involved in, and that's who I am. But Paul warns, and he says, Titus, do not get involved with foolish discussions about spiritual pedigrees or in quarrels or in fights about obedience to Jewish laws. These are useless, and they're a waste of time. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first. Warn them. If they don't stop, warn them again. After that, have nothing to do with them anymore. The idea that Paul is talking about when he says to warn the lazy is he's talking about this idea of those who destroy rather than build. You see, anybody can destroy someone else's life. It's easy to do that, isn't it? It's easier to destroy someone with the things we say than it is to build them up. It's easier for me to go out and to say something bad about someone as opposed to say something good about them. You see, if I say something good about someone else, what does that usually mean? I'm having to take the focus off of myself. And, and that gets hard. You see, when I go out and I tear someone else down, I'm saying, look at how much better I am. And so what he's saying is, is warn the lazy, warn those who destroy, warn those who bring down. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. And so he stops and he says, all right, secondly, you need to encourage the timid. What does an outward-centric faith look like? Well, one, warn the lazy. Warn those who want to destroy rather than build up. But encourage the timid. You know what? We need to be so careful that as followers of Jesus Christ, we're not out mocking those who are afraid, who deal with anxieties. To those who, who are dealing with struggles of doubt and fear in their lives, we don't do this with our kids when they're growing up, do we? At least we shouldn't do this with our kids. When our kids were young and they would be crying and said, Mom, Dad, I think I hear a monster under the bed. What did we do? We went in and laughed at them and made fun of them. No, we didn't do that, did we? We as parents would look down under the bed. Let me look, let me look. Let me check. No, there's not a monster there. Let me check the closet for you. No, there's no monster there. And we would sit there and we would hug them and we would, as they were crying, I'm so scared. It's, it's all right. We didn't mock them. We didn't make fun of them. We encouraged them. In fact, sometimes as a parent, you'd have probably have hugged them and laid down on the bed with them until they went to sleep so that they could be strengthened, encouraged, built up. And over time, they would have their own strength to look under their own bed, to look in their own closet. And so Paul tells us, he says, look, if you want a faith that begins to look outward, 
Warn those who cause divisions. And if they keep causing divisions, leave them. Number two, encourage those who are timid. He then goes on to say, take care of the weak. I don't know who Paul means when he says the weak. Take care of those who are weak. I I don't know whether he's referring to, um, is he dealing with people who are elderly? Is he dealing with people who are dealing with disabilities? Is he dealing with people who are orphans and widows? Is he dealing with, we don't know exactly who he's referring to. He simply says, hey, there are some in your congregation who are weak. And he says, take care of them. And in fact, he might even be dealing with them. We don't know because in the church that Paul was dealing with here, there were a lot of people who were owned by someone else. They had no voice of their own. And so Paul might have been saying, hey, speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves. Stand beside those who need someone to stand up for them. We're not exactly sure, but we all know that around us, there are sometimes people we need to stand up for, take care of. And Paul says, take care of those who are weak. Next, Paul tells us, and I think he tells us to be patient. Am I might make that see? Be patient. I don't know about you. This is one of those things that I continually struggle with. And I wish he kind of, I could have dealt with all these others. But the be patient thing. When someone continues to get on that last nerve. They don't mean to. They're just being themselves, but it just, okay. Okay, I know, I, I know you can't help it. I know you're not trying, to, but Paul says, be patient. You want a faith that is strong, is faith that is strong learns to have patience towards others. Then he says, number fifth, he says this, don't seek revenge. A faith that is strong does not try to get even. It is not trying to always make things fair. Now, can I say this? For relationships to be strong, there has to sometimes be restitution in relationships. There sometimes has to be dealing with situations and problems and forgiveness has got to be sought And sometimes things have got to be made right. And Paul's not talking about that. That's a whole different topic. Paul is dealing with the idea of revenge. You made me hurt, therefore I am going to make you hurt. Revenge is never worried about restitution. Revenge is never worried about rebuilding a relationship. Revenge is simply, how can I make you hurt? I hurt. Now I want you to hurt. And Paul says the faith that is strong, that is moving, that is helpful, that is useful, does not seek revenge. So he begins to deal with this idea. Avoid those who cause divisions. Be with the timid. Help them. Encourage them. Take care of those who are struggling. They're weak. Maybe they're dealing with doubts. 
Four, learn to deal with patience. Five, don't seek revenge. And then he deals with one more. If you want an outward looking faith, he says this, do good. Do good to your family members. That's a good place to start. Do good to your neighbors. Do good to your coworkers. Do good to the people that cut you off at the Walmart parking lot. Do good to the guys who just are rude and obnoxious. Do good. No matter what people believe about what we believe, it shouldn't matter. When people talk about you, what do they talk about? When people say, hey, that James, he's a strong person of faith. What do they mean by that? When they say he's a strong person of faith, are they referring to the fact that I want to argue with them all the time? When someone talks about my faith, uh, do, what do they mean? James, he's, he's, man, he's a strong person of faith. Does that mean he's a person who, who just feels good about all the decisions he makes? You see, when we begin to talk about this idea of doing good, here's the reality. When someone talks about our faith, the first thing that should come to our, their mind should be this idea that I may not agree with them, but man, they're a good person. I don't want to believe like they do, but hey, you know what? If I'm in trouble, you know who I'm going to ask? I may not like, in a sense, the fact that they go to church and they do, but, but you know what? I love the fact that they're my neighbor. They don't cuss me out. They're good. When there's a problem, they're good. You see, to be a strong person of faith is not about what we believe. It is partly about what we believe, but that is not the characteristics of a person of a strong faith is not how much you know. The characteristics of a strong person of faith is not how good you feel when you buy a car or a house or you move jobs. The characteristics of a strong person of faith is someone who lives their lives outwardly before others. Their life affects those around them, not because they're out shouting at them or hollering at them or, or beating them over the head with their Bible, but because of the way they live their life, it just naturally, hey, you can't help but bump into them. They're outward centric. They come alongside. They, that means we become someone else's providential relationship even when we're not trying to be someone's providential relationship. We step in when others want to run away. That's what faith looks like. Years ago, for several weeks, and actually it was nearly six months, I struggled with that back. It hurt. But the only reality is, is that for me to strengthen my back was not to sit down and let someone do for me. 
the only way for me to get my back strong was to get up and to do. Yes, it was limited on what I could do. But I had to move. Your faith cannot simply be about you. Your faith needs to get to a place where your faith is about what you do for those around you. Your faith is for you, but your faith is not about you. Did you get that? I'm gonna say that one more time. Your faith is for you, but your faith is not all about you. All right, I've got three questions I wanna close with this morning. So there's three different questions we're gonna kind of close with. Question number one. What do you think Paul was referring to when he said this? You still need to be fed with milk. I want you to kind of go home and think about that. What is he referring to? You still need to be fed with milk. Number, question number two. How do you feel when you hear this phrase? Your faith is for you, but it's not about you. I kind of want you to kind of think about that because it's kind of an interesting idea and that's what Paul continues to refer over and over and over again if you continue to read the New Testament. Our faith is for us, but it's not about us. And so how does that make you feel? Number three, one more. Try to name someone in your life who you are helping out on their faith journey right now. We all said we all need someone who steps into our life and our providential relationships or their relationships that come into our lives that build us up and strengthen us and encourage us. Now goes the question the other direction. Who are you stepping into? I don't think that's the proper way. Whose life are you stepping into? Whose life are you pushing? Let's go ahead and close. Father, this morning, as we get ready to close, Lord, we know you died on a cross so that we might have life. You didn't die for us to feel good, even though I do believe that when we follow you, things do work out better. Lord, you were never concerned with the type of car we bought and you aren't necessarily concerned with the job that we have you're concerned with how we reach out and touch others how does our life intersect into the life of someone else so father I pray that you help us not just to recognize those providential relationships that you bring into our lives, but Father, help us to be a providential relationship for someone else. Help us to step into someone else's life and encourage them, to love them, to build them. Lord, not to get caught on goofy arguments that have no value. To learn patience allow revenge to be something that you do. Father, help our lives to be like you. And we want to say how much we love you. In your name we pray.